Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun, our weekly podcast with stories about the weather. And this is the fifth episode in our special series on the weather and how it relates as we continue the fight against COVID-19. It was another week of volatile weather across the United States, with winter continuing to push back hard for the northern tier of the country, producing rounds of rain and severe weather. And snowflakes appeared much later into the spring season than many in the Great Lakes and Northeast would like to see. Meanwhile, we began to see a buildup of lots of heat in Florida and in the southwest United States. Also heating up, the debate about when to start reopening the economy and relaxing restrictions on people, with some states this week announcing they will start moving into phase one of the federal government's plans for a return to normalcy. While the curve seems to have flattened in many areas, there are still hot spots, especially in some of the East Coast big cities where governments and business leaders struggle with tough decisions weighing public health safety versus jobs and livelihoods. In this week's episode, we'll talk with the founder and CEO of Plume Labs, an AccuWeather partner which specializes in street-level mapping of air pollution. We'll discuss the effects of the shutdown, the differences we've seen in different parts of the world in air quality, and how now more than ever, air quality information on the hyper-local level will be important in dealing with COVID-19 going forward. Then we'll welcome in senior meteorologists Chrissy Pitanowski and Jason Nichols to talk about an amazing tool our AccuWeather team members have built and developed over the last couple of weeks for teachers, parents, and students. It's called AccuWeather School, lesson plans and experiments to teach science and the weather that are updated almost daily on our site. And finally, if, like me, your head swims every day trying to keep up with the latest information, but even more, you're struggling to really decide which information you can trust and which sources are telling you the truth. Well, our friend Dr. E is here to discuss the role that media plays in feeding our emotions and how we give yourself and our loved ones greater power in dealing with so many unknowns. We have lots to unpack this week, so let's get started. So now I'm pleased to welcome to Everything Under the Sun, founder and CEO of Plume Labs, Roman Lacombe. Plume Labs builds tools, including street-level mapping, to empower communities to deal with and conquer problems with air pollution. Earlier this year, our two companies announced a partnership to work together to incorporate that street-level mapping of air pollution and air quality into our forecasts here at AccuWeather. And then over the last few weeks, Plume Labs has put out some amazing data and information about some of the amazing changes we've been seeing in air quality in areas that have virtually shut down their industry and production and some commerce to help fight COVID-19. Roman, welcome in. Great to talk to you. I saw that first article we had in AccuWeather.com about a week or so ago about some of your findings in terms of the differences in pollution reduction that we're seeing in different areas of the world as we fight COVID-19. And we knew we wanted to talk to you. First of all, how are you doing? 
doing as good as is uh, possible in the current circumstances. I uh, hope you and our, our listeners as well are safe and sound at home. Uh, I'm calling in from Paris in France, where we've been in lockdown for about 40 days as well now. Uh, so learning to work uh, remotely and, uh, and adapting as much as we can as pretty much everyone is these days. Yeah, I definitely think uh, certainly that is now the common experience so worldwide. What has been not as common is the experience the atmosphere is going through in different areas of the world as we've seen COVID-19 and the responses from different countries and different regions play out. Maybe give us a little thumbnail of what you saw so far up to this point. Obviously, one of the widespread angles through which governments have tried to slow down the spread of the disease, right, has been to uh, shelter in place or um, at least to some extent restrictions on movement, uh, on, on industry, on activity, economic activity at large. A whole host of us, a whole lot of us who are um, either working from home or have reduced uh, the amount of time we spend outdoors, we stop driving. Uh, so you'd expect to see pollution uh, levels going down around the world. We've seen some of the uh, very dramatic uh, changes in, in those uh, remote data sets, those pictures of, of, of the Earth or of uh, air quality up in the air that the NASA satellite took. I believe even early February or late January, the first few pictures coming in from Wuhan showed that there was a clear decrease in air quality around the world. And Plume Labs focuses on, on tracking air quality levels and forecasting how it's going to change, uh, kind of like uh, what AccuWeather does for the weather around the world, right? So we've seen this progress. And as the pandemic started to uh, transmit to more and more countries, more and more cities, and became a pandemic and, and dropped continents, uh, and as governments responded to it, we could also see the same drops in pollution happen around uh, Europe. Up when we went into lockdown, the north of Italy, uh, pretty early on, uh, across the US as well as more and more states have enacted those same measures. Now, what's been interesting is, I guess, some level of surprise uh, if we read social media, if we track the conversations on Twitter, for example, uh, a lot of people expressing surprises at uh, finally seeing the sky, uh, sometimes seeing uh, stars at night. In India, I believe that some of the chains of mountains have become uh, easier to see from some of the cities. It is interesting to see those changes. Now, what's been striking as well as a company that specializes in the science of how the atmosphere changes in many cases, the data from the ground is much more nuanced. We've seen when we, for example, we looked at Los Angeles, where there's been a lot of reports of saying, people saying, oh, the, the air is so much crisper than we used to. And, and of course, when you see the, the pictures of the highways down in California, where you would usually have, you know, the 4 or 5 p.m. rush hour traffic with 20 lanes each down, way, all full, right? And suddenly it's all empty. You'd imagine that pollution is just completely gone. So we looked at the data, and actually the data sees that there has been a, a much better air quality level starting in early March, way before the lockdown was enacted. And that illustrates a point, which is, yes, things have gone uh, quite better in terms of atmospheric pollution levels, and that's something we should all rejoice from specifically, and we can talk about this later, but because air quality actually has an impact on the pandemic itself. But it's hard to tell sometimes uh, whether the drops in pollution levels are completely due to this level of activity that's changed or other factors. And we know that, for example, the weather is one of the main changes in, in air quality levels. And that's because the weather, if it's the air is mixed up, if we've got windy conditions, rainy conditions, that all kind of uh, goes in there. I want to unpack a couple of things, though, first. So I think it's fair to say the differences in pollution we saw in China were stark. We saw some good differences from the views from the ground and stuff, uh, some big differences, but maybe to less extent in some of the European countries. And we're seeing even less in the United States. 
Now, could you go opposite that, Roman, and say that that may be because the air quality in the United States overall was better going into the pandemic than some of these other places? So I think we, we, we should look at sort of two different groups of countries. And and actually, if we unpack this as well, there's really the question of where, where does air pollution comes from, right? Uh, there's really two things happening that leads to air pollution coming down into our lungs. One is, of course, the emissions, and that's all the economic activity. It's us driving our cars with uh, tailpipes. It's the the factories that are producing. It's power generation as well. I mean, we're still, uh, you know, the country's still very much running, and countries around the world still very much run power generation because we still have, uh, you know, the need for our lights on. And so that source of emission has not gone. But that's that's the, that's just the source of pollution. And then there's a whole second factor that less people think of when they think of of air quality, and that's the transformation of those primary emissions into what what is called secondary pollutants. A few examples of this, and that that is the process that's highly, highly um, intertwined with the weather. Why do we have pollution peaks in the summer in many regions in uh, North America and across Europe, across the world, um, at least in the northern atmosphere? It's because we have much more sun and the insulation levels, the UV levels in the atmosphere are interacting chemically with emissions of nitrogen oxides, for example, those, those harsh gases that you see from tailpipes and turn this uh, NOx, nitrogen oxide, into ozone. Now, we, we know about the ozone and the, the, you know, the hole in the ozone layer. That ozone is good uh, because it protects us from UV. But what that shows, right, is that UVs and ozone have this complex atmospheric chemistry. Turns out that closer to the ground, up at the level of, of air that we actually breathe, there is also some amount of ozone, but that is really harmful because ozone is so reactive, it actually gets into our lungs and it inflammates us. It can trigger asthma crises. It's a very bad problem for your health. That ozone is not emitted. No one creates ozone out of the atmosphere, but the pollutants we emit are transformed into this ozone. That's an illustration of there's many more processes like this. For example, something very simple, but when it when there's a lot of wind, it chases pollution down, dilutes it, and so usually air quality levels are going to be better. In some regions in the world, when there is wind, however, it brings pollution down or up from a uh, uh, an area that has much more uh, factory or power generation. And if you're downwind from those plants, of course, your air pollution level is going to go up. When it rains, that tends to absorb particulate matter, the defined dust that's in the air, and absorb NOx uh, levels as well. And that is what seems to have happened in March in Los Angeles as well. They had a streak of days with quite a bit to quite a lot of rain. That tends to clear up the air as well. And so it's really hard. It's actually impossible to tell uh, when pollution goes down, how much of it is due to us driving around less, how much of it is due to the, to the, to the weather. And so maybe to, to come back to your question about the differences we see between different countries, uh, it is, uh, it's interesting to, to think about, for example, uh, Europe versus the US, because a lot of our power generation, and I'm thinking specifically of France, where we're located, I believe about 80% of the electricity we produce comes from uh, nuclear power generation, which creates emissions when you build the plants but does not release pollution into the air as they run, right? So if you remove cars from the road, on average, you're going to remove a bit more pollution than uh, if you run your power generation system on, on other, other sources. Now, however, there's also an opposite issue, which is in Europe, we've tended historically in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s for uh, energy independence reasons we uh, encourage individuals driving cars to switch their cars to diesel uh, because it consumes a bit less oil to get the same amount of energy in your car. Uh, and now the problem is over the past uh, decades, we actually have learned now that it emits much more pollution. So if you drive less, 
it also means that we'll see a bit more of that pollution going down. See, those effects are really, really tricky. Uh, and I'll add one more level of complexity to the question. Uh, we, you know, you and I, uh, if we're at home, we're not driving anymore, so we do emit less pollution. But some of us still need to have things delivered. Uh, food still needs to reach its destinations. And so there's more and more and more uh, deliveries happening. Now, deliveries tend to be performed by trucks. And trucks, being bigger machines, tend to run on diesel as well, tend to have much more emissions. And in some parts of the world, and we were looking at that specifically in LA, there's actually much more emissions coming from the trucks, the delivery, the operations of the harbor in LA, for example, than from individual cars. Even though we all have these massive pictures of the highways uh, stuck at, uh, at the brush hour in mind, all that to say that the situation is much more complex than we think. It is true that pollution levels, by and large, have been going down around the world, but they have been going down far less than what we would like to believe. Is that somewhat of the folks that are more driving climate change and, and wanting more of a green society to be looking for these quick answers that, oh my goodness, you know, look at China, it just, it cleared out, the nation healed in minutes, or that's the thing I was reading on online. They, look, when we don't pollute, the nation can heal itself so quickly, but that answer can't really be given in the information that we have so far. So I, th I think what the situation shows uh, is actually how difficult uh, this issue is, because even with a massive, massive, massive disruption like this to our economy, we are still emitting much more than we think. Uh, if you remove, I think, the contribution of automotive to primary sources of emissions in California, if my figures are correct, is around 11%. So imagine you stop driving at all. There's only 11% of the pollution that you emit. And that's talking about uh, air quality. It's not even talking about CO2, which is, uh, so the, the, the climate aspect of things is even another type of, of pollution, right? So if you remove cars from the equation, you only limit things by 10%. Those 90 other percent, uh, they're the sum of all the human activity and, uh, you know, going from factories to deliveries to uh, residential heating. I mean, California, maybe less than other parts of the world, but in Pennsylvania, I assume most of, uh, most of our you know, houses have to be, uh, during the winter, have to be heated for quite a while. And that will adds up to a lot of emissions. And I think if there's a lesson we... Uh, I think we were looking at three different lessons from this crisis. One is how important it is to have great data to how complex environmental challenges are, because even if we reduce our activity to a very strong level with a very disruptive uh, shelter-in-place uh, mandates, we are still only cutting a few percentage uh, points out of our emissions. And so the scale of the challenges is, is massive. And the third lesson for me was how important it is to distinguish uh, exponential and non-exponential uh, issues, because the exponential ones, even if they seem slow at first, have a tendency to explode. And so that's the prism. I think you asked the question about how to think about the climate and how to think about air pollution in this, in this context, right? I guess what I see is the nuanced approach there between you know, either uh, alarmism or complacency. I think the, the key question is which processes can have this feedback loop and end up exploding in our face just like this pandemic did. And I think there's three things that have this potential or could have this destructive potential when it comes to COVID-19 and air quality specifically. One is that there's a suspected link between uh, air pollution levels and transmission of the virus. And it's still quite unlikely, but there is science going on at the moment in research to try to investigate whether or not high pollution levels tend to spread the virus. There is a clear statistical link between uh, average pollution levels in, a, in an area and how much people are dying from the virus. And we don't know yet the mechanisms uh, but there's there's a correlation there. Uh, whether or not there's a causation, that's what scientists are trying to work on. But uh, Harvard came out with a 
uh, a study uh, across, I think, every county in the U.S. that showed that if you had a bit of a higher level of exposure to particulate matter uh, over the years 2000 to 2016, four years later today, uh, your county would see higher levels of death from COVID-19, right? So there is something going on here. And then the third thing is, uh, I think it's time to rebuild. It will be time soon to uh, you know, get back to uh, trying to build the way of life that uh, we, we, we know and enjoy. And one of the questions there is, how do we make sure we don't leave you know, on the side of the road people who have suffered from COVID-19, who thankfully recovered, but had one of the most critical forms of the disease? And what we know there is that air pollution will be also a factor of exacerbation of some of the damage that uh, the lungs have suffered. And so one more reason to think about air quality in the context of how can we improve our health, how can we decrease the burden of uh, disease, and how can we make sure we all uh, you know, live lives full of uh, uh, opportunity and, and, uh, and, and safe from the weather and from uh, air pollution. And for that reason, Roman Lacombe, thank you so much for uh, partnering as Plume Labs with AccuWeather. I think it's going to be an amazing partnership going forward because air pollution and air quality may key the role in how we all deal with this, not only in the next few months, but going forward. Roman, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Next up, I'll take you to school. AccuWeather School. We'll talk to two of our team members involved in helping parents and educators teach science through weather with lesson plans easily accessed on AccuWeather.com. That's all coming up next on Everything Under the Sun. Listen to Weather Insider every weekday for a discussion on trending weather news with me, Bernie Reno, and Evan Myers. You'll get detailed insight into major weather events and learn the why behind the weather, gaining knowledge on terms like What's a nor'easter? Just subscribe to Weather Insider on your favorite podcast platforms today. Welcome back to this week's episode of Everything Under the Sun. The lives of teachers, students, and parents changed dramatically with the coronavirus, moving virtually all elementary through secondary education online. Well, that left an opportunity that some of our dedicated AccuWeather team members saw and capitalize on an opportunity to teach others about something we love, the weather. I'd like to bring online two of our senior meteorologists, Chrissy Pitanowski and Jason Nichols, to talk about AccuWeather School. And it's great to talk to Chrissy and Jason. Um, you know, I've been in this company now 22 years, and I know you both have been team members. Jason's five years more than me. I know that because we now go to the uh, anniversary dinner together. Chrissy, you're how many years now? 16 this uh, coming June. That's amazing. Seems like uh, yeah, trust me. I, I can't believe it. <laughs> but one of the things over those 15, 20, 25 years, I think we all understand is the great thing about AccuWeather team members is when they see a need they come up with great ideas and and get it going. And one of the great ideas that was uh, was thought out very quickly when this all broke, and we all understood that everything was changing, including education and how parents would need to educate their children and need help with that, that AccuWeather could step in and be a big help to that by creating some source material. And Chrissy, just uh, talk a little bit about the emphasis and the genesis from it from there. So what happened, I, it really was 
the brainchild of our president, Steve Smith. You know, he had the idea to come up with an online resource. And so I was approached and was part of a team with Andrew Tavani, Carol Jones, and really the three of us have been working together to just come up. We came up with the name AccuWeather School, figured that was pretty fitting. And so just came up with it from there, but really have had the help of others. Jason, he's been great at coming up with experiments because we wanted something that wasn't just okay, here's the information. We wanted to make it fun because, you know, the weather's fun. And so we, you know, all of us who are meteorologists, we've loved it from a young age. So you don't love something from a young age if you didn't find it to be fun. And so that's exactly what we thought to do with it. So we have the experiments. And like I said, Jason has been great with providing them. His his daughters too have been, you know, showing the kids that, you know, it is fun too. And, but others have been coming up with ideas. So it really has been a great team team effort to really help teachers and parents. Jason, I want to talk about that because um, uh, I was at the anniversary dinner with you a couple of years ago, met your children and uh, realized how much they adore you. And I understand why now, because of the things that I've been seeing and the experiments that you've been coming up with, uh, labor of love, but then a help to other people to set an example. Yeah, I've been doing these experiments when I do school visits. So I've Started out with a few, and I've gained more over the years. And the, my daughters have helped me on on a few visits to summer camps and stuff as my helpers on some of these experiments. So I had I have a big stash of experiment stuff and t- weather toys all down <laughs> all down in the basement, all in a big giant roller suitcase. So I had all this material. I actually, put some in my global blog, and then I saw Chrissy was doing the AccuWeather at school and. She took some of those experiments, some of those videos, and I actually some I sent her videos that I never posted in in the blog that I just taped because my daughters are having a great time helping me with this, and it's actually teaching them some science in the process. So, Chrissy, lay out for me each of these lessons. Uh, give me a little s- scope on that. Yeah, well, what we're trying to do is have center the lesson plans on a topic. So. This week with the meteor shower, that was a topic. Um, Lightning, hail, try and make it relevant to the current situation. Not going to really talk about falling leaves right now. We're talking more springtime, tornadoes, hail. And with that, each lesson plan, we have a morning bell kind of kick off the topic. Um, Every day there's homework. Can't have school without homework. So it's just kind of something fun the kids can go home and do. One um, was talking about clouds. So it was like, okay, go out, look at the sunset because clouds can enhance sunsets. Also with that, we have spelling tests, uh, spelling bee, pop quizzes, um, study hall. Basically, art class two is another one. So it's been fun to come up with those um, with the, the spelling bee lightning, very common misspelled words. So kind of broke it down for everyone to say, okay, these are how people spell it. This is the right way. These are what people think, but lightning, it means something else. So we tried to, you know, use those examples. That's really cool. Jason, talk about a couple of the experiments that you've done with your, with your children and, and, uh, a couple of the specific ones that you've been enjoying the most. Uh, the big one for most of the kids, uh, my daughters and the people in school, actually the little marshmallow experiment where you use the wine saver, it actually makes the marshmallows expand. And then as you put the air back in, it makes them shrink back down again. Uh, the big one is also the exploding egg into the milk jug. That's a big one. New one is my favorite toy is the fire syringe, which actually ignites a piece of cotton on fire just by compressing a, a little column of air down really fast. 
works on the same premises like diesel engines, but it also relates to weather as well. So those are the three big ones. And then there's some other ones like make your own little tornado in a little soda bottle. That one I found online and the kids love that one because it's actually something you can make at home with stuff around your house. It's really easy and you'll have a toy to play with. (laughs) It'll make your own little tornado. So that's pretty cool. Those are awesome. Uh, Look, uh, these are um, amazing things. And, you know, how much fun, Jason, have your daughters enjoyed it? Have uh, they gotten a little uh, famous? Uh, are they are they are they talking to an agent now? Is uh, how's that going? <laughs> uh, not talking to agents yet, but they did love seeing their faces <laughs> on the website and seeing the videos. Uh, especially my younger daughter, who was in most of the videos. My older daughter was actually the videographer for most of them, so she didn't appear on too many of the on the videos. But my younger daughter was my big helper. So, and they love helping me with these experiments. Like I said, I've been doing these school visits and summer camp visits and been doing these experiments for a while. And they've helped me with a few of them and they love them. They love some of the new ones as well. And they love to help me try out new experiments. Uh, I'm trying out new experiments all the time, try to expand the library a little bit. And they love helping me with them. Well, uh, tell them that they're getting a great reaction and great following. Chrissy, I know another feature that you've been working in fairly regularly is one of our podcasts, uh, This Date in Weather History, hosted by friend and meteorologist Evan Myers. How's that fitting in to the lesson plan? Well, you can't have school without history class. Um, I don't know many schools that don't have that in their curriculum. So we have that as well. And it's just really worked out really nice. And actually, when I've been coming up with the topics, I then look at what's the plan for this day in weather history, and it lines up pretty well. So I think it just adds something. Again, it's in the theme of it's not always just text that they're reading. You know, it's something the kids can just listen to and it just works out and it resonates well of, you can tell them till they're blue in the face that hail can be as large as over two pounds or lightning can be deadly, but you give them an example, they can learn from that. Another example was the anniversary of the Titanic. It worked out really well. We were covering clouds that day and it just kind of fit, worked it in really well because actually it was a clear sky that night. And, uh, you know, I've never, I've actually never heard the phrase that it was a perfect storm of calmness that led to the Titanic sinking. So it was nice just to, you know, I will admit I'm learning some new things, you know, especially the history stuff. And it's fun to revisit some stuff that, you know, I might not have thought about in a while. And so that's where these podcasts really just enhance the daily lesson plan. We've made them for the, um, the students, but maybe the teachers will get a good lesson too. Yes. Chrissy, where can we learn more about this? Well, we have it right there. If you go to AccuWeather.com, just go to the right side, scroll down some, and you'll see it right there with the title AccuWeather School. And the one nice thing is we don't just post the daily lesson plan, the entire lesson plan at the start of the day, but we add to the entry as the day goes on. So just so you can keep checking back, like I said, in the morning, we'll always have the morning bell, but then you can see the different you know, lesson plans as you go through the day and then wrap it up with some homework at the end of the day. Senior meteorologist Chrissy Pitanowski and senior meteorologist and lead international forecaster for AccuWeather, Jason Nichols, thank you so much. Thank you. Up next, our weekly visit with Dr. Eric Fisher, who addresses the frustration we all feel when so many different points of view and pieces of information are coming at us like a tsunami every day. Dr. E will attempt to calm those waters with us coming up next on Everything Under the Sun.
Make AccuWeather Daily a part of your daily routine. Enable the flash briefing and say, Alexa, what's my flash briefing? To access this content on Google Assistant, all you have to say is, Hey Google, talk to AccuWeather Daily. You'll get the top trending weather story of the day, every day. Time now to welcome in licensed psychologist, author, and frequent news network contributor, Dr. Eric Fisher, for his weekly visit. Dr. E, welcome back. You know, first of all, I want to thank you on behalf of myself. And I know I had a lot of people reach out to me about last week's segment in terms of that separation between work and home when you're working from home. I think it uh, resonated a lot. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, I still have people uh, telling me that it's a great useful information. And I thought we kind of go on the same vein today, Dr. E, where we're looking at the situation that another thing that I'm finding myself struggling with is trying to sort out all of this information. I mean, every day it's a new study. This is different. This is different. We've got differing guidelines. We've got differing organizations and agencies talking to us. It just seems like all of that information is getting harder and harder to synthesize. And I think myself and I know other people, I think, are struggling with that right now. Right. And I, I definitely agree. And that, that's partly why I think this is an important discussion now, because again, where I live in Georgia, last week we talked about them opening up the beaches. Now this week they're talking about opening up certain businesses and there'll be bowling alleys and restaurants and all these places opening. And we have to wonder, you know, where's the information coming from that they're basing it on? And what this all comes back to, to me is trust. And to me, when we look at the concept of trust, where does that come from and how do we know on who to trust? I know we've touched on that before as well, but it's a recurring theme here. So um, when we have all this information coming out, we have to look at the power of the word that is used, the words. We also look at the power of of who are delivering those words. And I think that's where we really have to, to question ourselves in where we come up with how we will believe what we believe, what we trust, who we listen to. Well, some of that, the problematic part of that is before this event, there was a polarization in lots of thought and people tended to go to places that they were more comfortable with getting the message of the news or what was going on that kind of fit their point of view. Right. This is exactly. a whole different situation now when it's your life. And that is hard to kind of differentiate which of these media outlets or is the mainstream media something we trust? What, yeah, how, do, you, well, do you understand that? Absolutely, because here's kind of what I see is for the media and for any one media source to gain a following, they have to build a, a customer base. And how do you build a customer base in the media really other than evoking emotions? So these are very evocative words that media outlets have tended to use. And in our more sensationalistic society, the words have become more extreme, whether it's about the virus or whether it's about the, you know, the, the oil plunges, oil crashes, you know, all these words that we just see this week, we can, we can pick out any number of headlines. And we, what I think happens is while there's been a discussion that has been taken advantage of, of the fake media, I think what we have to look at it is really it's at times been the exaggerated media. And we have to be careful of the words that we use because when, and even I think we can talk about this in weather. So many times y'all have delivered very appropriate and well-researched 
information on storms that are coming. Yet we hear storm of the century on this outlet, and we hear you know this uh, you know these, these other words about these snow apocalypse was one that you know Ex- exactly. You know. And it's like let's find the creative word. But then what happens when that storm doesn't come, or a weather pattern changed, or things we couldn't predict, or it felt overblown because people stopped trusting who was delivering that information that they were doing it for attention, for ratings, for for this or that. Then you run into a similar problem we have right now with the virus. In a what way. I find in that situation when I get frustrated with that is take a moment, my partner and I step back and we start doing our own research. Well, what is really this virus and what does that mean? And what, you know, you find out there's a lot of information out there that we don't necessarily seem to be getting if we're relying on traditional media times. But I think this is a good educational tool for parents to children is showing them how to critically look at things, critically research, critically decide on their own, not being told necessarily what to think about something. Perfect. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a great exercise to do with your kids. The problem is, is when we live in our news silos and our, our information silos that we get comfortable with hearing a certain network or a certain alignment and we and we do that we're more likely to fall into the confirmation bias in other words we're going to find and seek out information that agrees with our views because people like that feeling that they feel that somebody agrees with them or they feel like they know something and sometimes when we find out things that we don't want to know like you know inconvenient truths as i call them and they've been called in other situations then we need to look at what emotions does that evoke in us as well so a lot of this really why we want to seek knowledge becomes an emotional process to me one of the other things is um, the delivery of traditional media has become this knockdown drag out you know kind of everything's a fight one side view the other side of you you each get 2 minutes go at it and yell at each other and that's not the way our society, and especially here in our country, was built on. It was built on being able to express ideas and views, talk it out, and come up with the best decision for the collective for, you know, but that's has gone away. I mean, you can practice this now in your families. I mean, because there's differing points of view in families, more talking about these things in a rational way, right? Exactly, exactly. And what to me it comes back to is, you know, I talk about my models of power. I have my hierarchical model of power, which I give the example from the big circle to the little circle, and I'm trying to teach people to move to equity. What are cultures become more and more about is really an ingrained hierarchical structure. Whereas if I'm the big circle, I'm in charge and I'm supposed to have all the control and all the power. And in that hierarchical structure, there are four dichotomies, good and bad, right and wrong, strong and weak, and win and lose. And what I teach is that when people want to be strong, and that's where I feel like we've been moving more towards, if I'm strong, and I win. So in other words, let's say we're having a war because often this becomes a war of words. If I'm the strongest and I win the war, then I define the good and the right of that culture. And that's what we're fighting for is, you know, as they say, the hearts and minds of the people. So in that we have lost public discourse because everybody wants to win and we're winning, unfortunately, at any cost. And to me, it's going to be at the cost of our generation our kids' generations, and future generations. And that's why we have to find our alignment again. 
I'm always feeling like I'm winning when I'm talking to you, Dr. E. So I <laughs> uh, appreciate that. That helps me put some things into clarity. I think um, these weekly visits help, and we look forward to checking in with you again next week. Well, you know, I wanted to offer another cone before I check out a Zen cone. I've offered a few of them up. This one is, says, we stand in our own shadow and wonder why it's dark. So I will leave that to your listeners to ponder that one. But basically, again, we have to see why sometimes we can't see the light when, it, when we're in our own way of that. So it's time for us to maybe get out of our ways, opens our, open our minds, communicate, build our communities, and build our trust among each other again. Licensed psychologist and friend of this show now, Dr. E. Thank you. Thank you. A reminder that you can follow Dr. Fisher on Twitter and get his daily doses of sunshine. That's at DCTRE, shorthand for Dr. E. Again, that's at DCTRE. Also, would like to thank Chrissy Pitanowski and Jason Nichols for their information about AccuWeather School. You can find out more information about all those great lessons, plans, and experiments on our website, AccuWeather.com. And amazing thanks to Roman Lacombe, from Plume Labs for the thought-provoking information, and it'll be interesting to see how air quality and pollution and the weather interact as we go forward as people deal with coronavirus. Friends, this weekend's weather and next week's weather just doesn't look any less volatile than last week's. In fact, another chilly push of colder than normal air will get into the middle of the country first this weekend. It'll create storminess along the eastern seaboard. It'll be wet in the Pacific Northwest. Meanwhile, the Southwest is dry and warm this weekend. But then that southwestern heat intensifies next week as many areas from L.A. to Boise to Phoenix all will get up to about 20 degrees above normal. Chilly air again settles into the northeast, stormy in the southeast. Now more than ever, you can keep track of the weather minute by minute on AccuWeather.com and your AccuWeather.com app on your smartphone or device. For the latest information on the coronavirus, visit our website, www.accuweather.com slash coronavirus. And for the latest snapshot of cases, we've got an amazing map that shows you minute by minute that great information. Friends, on behalf of executive producers Ken Prell and Andrew Robin, representing proudly all of our dedicated and tireless AccuWeather team members across the world, I'm meteorologist Dean DeVore. Until next week, stay safe and well. <laughs>